You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. Well, after today, there will be only four teams remaining in the NCAA men's basketball tournament. And these four teams will play in what is famously called the Final Four. And to be honest, I don't really care who wins. I, I hope that doesn't offend anybody if your team is still playing, if you're a big Florida Atlantic fan, or uh, I know nobody's bracket is still intact. Apparently after week one, round one, over 20 million brackets were busted. So no, that's not the case. For me, at this point in time, what I tend to do is I, I just pull for whichever team, when, it, when the games are going on, I pull for whichever team is losing at halftime. That's what I think about it. It's, it's fun to watch a good come from behind win. And I think most people feel that, that same way. You just think about all your favorite sports movies, right? We, we love a good epic comeback. And maybe you've seen a big win like that before. Maybe you've seen a comeback like that before in person. Maybe you've even been in the locker room yourself, part of a team who got to do something like that. Either way, I think that we could all sort of imagine what has to happen for a team to come back and win. Okay, so just imagine with me for a second. It's halftime. Your team's in the locker room. You're down by 20 points. And your coach wants to inspire you to victory. Now, what must he do? in order to inspire you to victory. Well, he's got to do at least two things. A good coach will do at least two things. First, he must give an honest assessment of the situation. Secondly, he must give reasonable hope for better results. Those two things. First, you need to know where you're at. How do we get here? Why is it like it is right now? And then, second, you need to know, how might we get somewhere differently? If you're down by 20 points, you need to know why. Something isn't working. Something needs to change. You have to be honest about that. But also, you have to know, is is change really possible? We need to know more than just the problem. We need to know how we might overcome the problem. We We need confidence that we can make a change that will yield better results. Honest assessment, reasonable hope. Those two things are necessary really for any kind of comeback. Any kind of comeback has to have those two things. And I mentioned these two things this morning, not because it's March, not because it's March Madness and I care too much about the Final Four. It's because we actually see both of these things in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11, to chapter 6, verse 3. In the book of Hebrews, we're getting closer to the middle of chapter 6, where we're going to find the strongest warning passage in the entire New Testament. That's going to be next week. But for today, in 5.11 to 6.3, it's really important for us to hear the writer's tone. 
We're going to read next week for sure some uneasy words. He's going to say some uneasy words, but he's not saying these things with a pessimistic attitude. The writer of Hebrews has not given up on his readers. And so I want you to imagine that the writer is saying these things as a coach who wants to inspire his team for a comeback. Try to imagine that. Try to hear that kind of tone in these words. And you're going to see he's doing two things. He gives an honest assessment of the situation, verses 11 to 14, and then he gives reasonable hope for better results in chapter 6, verses 1 to 3. And those are the two parts of the sermon this morning. Let's pray and we'll dig in. Father in heaven, your word is living and active, just like you are right now. By your spirit and by your power, we ask, accomplish your will this morning. We are surrendered to you, Father. We are surrendered to your will. For your glory, do what seems good to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so we're going to start with that honest assessment of the situations 11 to 14. And my goal here, I really want us to understand these verses, which means it's going to take a little time, okay? I'm going to slow down. We're going to spend some, some time on this. I do think it's going to be worth it, okay? So just try to hang with me, all right? In, the, in these verses, verse 11 is where we see the writer's assessment right away. Uh, the banner phrase, I think, of his assessment of the situation of these first readers, what's going on with them, he says it here, they have become dull of hearing. I want you to see that there at the, the end of verse 11. They've become dull of hearing. Now, in these verses, just before verse 11, the writer of Hebrews has been talking about what it means that Jesus is our high priest. We saw this last week. Jesus is the Son of God who is king and who is also a priest forever, appointed by God after the order of Melchizedek. Now Melchizedek was a mysterious priest in the Old Testament who makes only one appearance in Genesis 14. He's referred to later in Psalm 110, but he only makes one appearance in Israel's history. And the writer of Hebrews is gonna come back to Melchizedek in chapter seven. But when he first mentions Melchizedek here in chapter 5, he immediately interrupts himself in verse 11. And he says, about this, we have much to say. This, the this that he's talking about is referring to verse 10. He's talking about Jesus being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. The writer of Hebrews could say more about Melchizedek right away, but he can't just get right into it because apparently it's too deep for these readers. It's, it's hard to explain to these first readers because verse 11, they have become dull of hearing. That's the situation. That's their situation. And now what the writer's going to do, 
He's going to explain more to them of what that means. But before we see that explanation, I want you to notice carefully what he's saying here in these words. You have become dull of hearing. The word dull here could also be translated lazy or sluggish. We're going to see it again next week. It shows up in next week's passage as well. And the issue here, this dullness or laziness or sluggishness, these first readers have become that way. They didn't start that way. But because apparently of various circumstances, most likely because of opposition, they have become that way. There's been a slide. There's been a negative change. And they're not just dull or lazy or sluggish in general, but they're dull in hearing. And when the writer says that, he's talking about their spiritual hearing of the Word of God. That's why he can't get straight into Melchizedek. Let me paraphrase verse 11 this way. This is what the writer's saying. He's saying, team, bring it in. There's a lot I want to tell you about Melchizedek and about how Jesus is our high priest and how, and how Genesis and the Psalms point to him. But it's deep stuff. And I need to be honest with you. The reason that I can't go straight there, the reason we can't get right into this is because you have become spiritually sluggish in how you receive teaching. You've become dull of hearing the word of God. That's what he's saying in verse 11. And that should get our attention. Now in verse 12, he just explains more. He says that this dullness of hearing is not as it should be. It's not the way it's supposed to be. That's what the word ought, ought is doing there in verse 12. By this time, you ought to be teachers. The word ought by itself carries a lot of weight. The word ought implies that there's a certain way or standard or reality that is expected, and when that's not realized, it means something is wrong. And we use the word ought this way all the time. My flight ought to have arrived by 8 p.m., a husband ought to love his wife. The snow ought to melt in the next two weeks. Amen? The word ought's a good word. It's a good word. It's in the fabric of reality. And we need the word. We need the word ought personally and in our relationship with God if we understand it the right way. And this is where the tone, the tone is so important. The purpose of the alt is not to shame these readers. The writer of Hebrews is not trying to beat these Christians down. He's not relishing an opportunity to criticize them. But he is saying this 
to call them up. He wants to call them up. Just, just imagine a good coach in the locker room. You're down by 20 points. This is an honest assessment. This is just where we're at. Verse 12, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. These Christians have been Christians long enough that they should be able to be teachers. Now, that doesn't mean that they should all literally be teachers or pastors. But the writer of Hebrews is saying that these Christians ought to know enough about the Bible and Christian doctrine that they could teach it to others. Personalities aside, which means this goes for every Christian in this room, there's a point in every Christian's walk when they should know enough about Christian truth to be able to explain it to someone else. But for these Christians that the writer of Hebrews is writing to, these, these first readers, rather than they being able to teach, they actually need someone to teach them the basic principles of the oracles of God. The oracles of God is another way to say the word of God. The, the writer is talking about the Bible here. And when he says this phrase, this, this basic principles phrase, it's like he's saying the ABCs. These are the most basic fundamental parts. The, the writer of Hebrews is saying, hey, by now you ought to know enough about the word of God to be teachers yourselves but you still need somebody to teach you the ABCs. And then that sets up the growth analogy at the end of verse 12 when he says, you need milk, not solid food. That's not as it should be. You need milk, not solid food. And we, we understand right away the, the analogy here that he's doing. Because he's not been talking about milk and food in the passage. He's not talking about milk and food. He's been talking about spiritual development. And so now he brings in this analogy of how children grow. And we can all get this. Thousands of years later, we, we get what he's saying here. He's saying, hey, you need milk as in, hey, you're still like babies and you shouldn't be. It's an honest assessment. It's an honest assessment. You're like babies, and you shouldn't be like babies. Not now. Not at this point. And then in verses 13 and 14, he's going to explain this analogy even more. But before we, we get to verses 13 and 14, I just want to paraphrase. I, I, I like a good paraphrase, um, and I try to do it when I read the Bible to try to encapsulate what's being said. So just to make sure we're all tracking, I'm going to try to paraphrase verses 11 and 12, okay? So the writer of Hebrews mentioned Melchizedek in verse 10, and him mentioning Melchizedek presented a problem. So in verses 11 and 12, this is what he says. He says, hey, I want to tell you more about Melchizedek. I want to, 
But it's hard to explain to you, Melchizedek, because you've become dull in hearing the Word of God. By now, you should all know the Word of God well enough to be teachers yourselves. But you actually still need someone to teach you the ABCs. Look, let me explain this to you with an analogy of how children grow. It's, it's, you're acting like, you're, you're living like, you're treating the Word like you're still little babies who need milk, not solid food. That makes sense? Verses 11 and 12, that's, that's what he's saying in verses 11 and 12. Now, in verses 13 and 14, the writer explains this analogy even more with a comparison. As for these Christians who live on milk, verse 13, they are unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. So the, the one who lives on only milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. The alternative to that is verse 14. Solid food, on the other hand, is for the mature. That is to say, it's for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. And that's just a longer way of saying mature. You try to imagine a table. I'm talking like a, like a data table deal, okay? I'm going to use my hands here. Try to imagine a table that's contrasting two different ways to live, all right? You have two columns, you got three rows, okay? Let's imagine that. Those who drink only milk are on this side. Those who eat solid food are on this side. Milk only drinkers, solid food eaters. You got that? Now, what this, this text does in these verses, it, it just keeps on comparing those two. So the, the, the milk-only drinkers, those who drink only milk, are unskilled in the Bible. Or we might say they're inexperienced. Either they don't get the word or they're not applying the word. I think the simplest way to describe these folks is that there's a disconnect with the Bible. It's over here. Then you got over here, you got those who eat solid food. And they have a deepening ability to discern because they've been trained by, by constant practice or we could say experience. They can distinguish good from evil. And what's implied here about these folks is that this person has been shaped by the Bible to see the world through a biblical lens. They're not gullible to the stuff that's going on around them. They have some discernment from the word. So the milk-only person is unskilled in the Bible. They're little children, babies who drink only milk. The person over here, the solid food eater, has been shaped by the Bible to read the world. They're mature. See that? Babies, mature. That's the comparison. And the writer of Hebrews is saying to these first readers, you ought to be mature. But you're little babies. It's an honest assessment. It's an honest assessment, team, of where we're at. It's halftime and we're down, we're down by a lot. And we need to know why. That's part one. Got that? An honest assessment of the situation. That has to come first. 
And now that that's come, now we have part two. Part two is a reasonable hope for better results. That starts in chapter six, verse one. Everybody look at chapter six, verse one. Notice the word there, therefore, therefore. Everybody see that? Now, the main command in this passage that we're looking at today is here in verse one. And that word, therefore, tells us that this main command is connected to the honest assessment of chapter five, verses 11 to 14. Verse one says, therefore, because we're clear about where we're at, because, because we know that where we're at is not as it should be, leaving the elementary doctrine of Christ, let us go on to maturity. That's the literal order of the wording there. He starts with a negative, then gives the positive. First, we're leaving one thing, then we're going on to another. We're saying no to childishness. We're saying yes to maturity. And the emphasis here really is on that positive command toward maturity. And I want us to end here, okay? We're going to end with that positive command, but we need to see closely here carefully here what we're called to leave. This is important because the writer of Hebrews we see is repeating the same idea he mentioned before. Here he's explaining more of what he's already said. In verse one, when he uses that phrase, the elementary doctrine of Christ, he's talking about the same thing that in chapter five, verse 12, he called the basic principles of the oracles of God. Elementary doctrine of Christ, basic principles of the oracles of God. He's talking about the ABCs again. He's talking about the stuff for little children. This is the milk he's talking about in his analogy. I, I, I I love the way that Eugene Peterson paraphrases this verse. Chapter six, verse one, he paraphrases, hey, let's leave the preschool finger painting exercises on Christ. That's what he's saying. That is a thing, that's a thing. There are basics. There are ABCs that we move on from. We don't reject them. We don't reject these things. They're not bad things. We just develop beyond these things. And since that's the case, we need to know what these things are. What are these basic principles? What what is this elementary doctrine? What is the milk? What's the milk? The good news is that the writer of Hebrews is going to tell us. Beginning at the end of verse 1, he mentions six things, six things that make up the basics of what he's been talking about, and he mentions them in three pairs in verses 1 and 2. So it's the, you can see that you can follow follow along here in verses 1 and 2, a foundation of repentance from dead works, faith toward God. Instructions about washings, laying on of hands. Resurrection from the dead, eternal judgment. These are the ABCs. And I don't think here that this is an exhaustive list, but these are the basics that they're dealing with at that time. And if we look at these things closely, we'd see that one thing that they all have in common is that they're all part of Judaism. So these are not just things that Christians believe, but these are things 
that Jewish people believe. And I think that explains why some of these Christians only want to stay with these basics. I track with this, okay? Let's remember what's going on here for these first readers. Remember, this book was first written to Jewish Christians who were tempted to abandon Jesus and revert back to Judaism. And that temptation was because they were pressured by the surrounding Jewish community. These Christians were experiencing opposition from Jewish neighbors because of their new Christian faith. And perhaps one way to deflect that opposition, perhaps one way to to blunt some of that opposition was for them to emphasize the common ground between Christianity and Judaism and not really to get into the differences. If these Christians can convince their Jewish neighbors about how much they have in common, like like the ABCs or verses one and two, if, if they can just stick with the basics, stick with the ABCs, then maybe their Jewish neighbors won't persecute them. And now when we see it in this light, it means that the dullness of hearing in chapter 5, verse 11, is not accidental, but it's strategic. These Christians have become sluggish about going deeper in the Word of God because they know that going deeper will cost them. The more they learn, and apply truth from the Bible that is distinctively Christian, it will put them at odds with their surrounding Jewish context, and they don't want to be at odds. That's uncomfortable. For example, the writer of Hebrews, he wants to talk about Melchizedek. He wants to go there. He wants to tell these Jewish Christians that the entire time Genesis 14 has been pointing to Jesus. The book of Genesis is about Jesus. He wants to tell them that. He wants to explain to them the significance of Melchizedek, which means, though, that the rabbi down the street gets the Hebrew scriptures wrong. He's not reading it rightly. All of these people around us are reading it wrongly. But see, the writer can't go there. The writer can't get into those details because these readers just want the ABCs. They want the uncontroversial ABCs. Can we just talk about faith in God? Can can we just stick to the common ground? What we have here is what you could call a preference for the common ground driven by cowardice. And just so we're clear, this kind of thing happens today all the time. Churches are constantly tempted by this common ground preference because they don't want to come off as too different from those around them. Here's what I mean. 
And this is as an application. I, I want to, again, I want to try to explain this with my hands. Um, so imagine now you got two circles, all right? You got a circle here and you got a circle here, okay? And what we're going to do, we're going to do a Venn diagram, all right? Circle here, circle here. Well, in this circle here, you, you have in this circle the fullness of the Christian faith. You have the gospel and all the depths of the Bible's teaching in this circle, okay? Now, over in this circle, you have the surrounding societal values. Now, in Hebrews chapter 6, this circle is Judaism, all right? But I, I want us to get the application. For us, right now, reverting back to Judaism is not our temptation. That's not where our opposition or pressure comes from. So we're going to say that this circle right here is the secular societal values. See the two circles? Venn diagram, Christian faith, societal values. And because the truth of God is woven all throughout his creation, because every human has some sense of God in them, you're always going to find in society that they share some common ground with the Christian faith. Every society, they're going to share some common ground with the Christian faith. For example, if you think about our societal values, Think about the love of neighbor, the love of neighbor. Now that's a command for us. To love our neighbor is a command for Christians in the Bible. And it's something that by and large, our society values, or at least a version of it. So in the Venn diagram, love of neighbor is in the middle. Get it? See the middle? Love of neighbor. Another example. Help for the needy, help for the needy. Now as Christians, we are called to bind up the brokenhearted. We, we want to care for the vulnerable. And that's something that our society thinks is a good thing, or at least a version of it, right? So care for the needy, that goes in the middle too. A third example. The pursuit of happiness. As Christians, we believe that God created us to have eternal happiness. The pursuit of happiness in God is holy. That's what we're made for. Now, this topic of happiness, our society really likes that. They're all about that, all about happiness. At least a version of it, right? But it goes in the middle as well, all right? So you got the two circles, you got the two circles. The Venn diagram, Christian faith right here, societal values right here, and there's some common ground between the two. Christian faith, societal values, there's common ground between the two. Here are three examples. Love of neighbor, help of the needy, human happiness. Those three things are examples of common ground. Now imagine if a church were to say, or a Christian were to say, all this deeper stuff in the circle, we don't really want to go there. We, we only want to talk about loving our neighbor and helping the needy and living a happy life. Now, can you imagine a church doing something like that?
Yes, it happens all the time. It happens everywhere. And guess what? The surrounding world approves of them. If the middle stuff, good stuff, but if the middle stuff, if this common ground, if that is all your church is about, then the people in these cities who hate God will applaud you. And I just want us to be clear, that's not what we're trying to do, okay? That is not the goal of Cities Church. Now, we certainly believe all the common ground things according to the Bible, we do. But most importantly, is the supremacy of Jesus Christ. We worship Jesus. We bow before Jesus, and Jesus calls us to the deeps. He calls us to the whole circle, and that's going to mean opposition. That means that we're going to teach truths, and we're going to apply truths from God's Word that will bring disapproval from the world. That's the cost of being a mature Christian. That's the cost of being a church of mature Christians. And that cost is why some just want to do the ABCs. Let's just do more finger painting. Can we just, can we just stick with the milk? Goo goo gaga. There is a dullness of hearing that is deliberate, deliberate. But we see the command here in verse one, this wonderful, simple command, let us go on to maturity. Now the question is, if we've seen the honest assessment of the situation, how does this command give us reasonable hope for something better? Two reasons. The first is that maturity is our destiny. And this is in that little verb there, to go on. It's a passive verb, which means to say it more precisely, what we'd say, to be born along or to be carried along. That's actually how the word is translated in, in the few other places it shows up in the New Testament. It's, a, it's an important detail because when it comes to our maturity in Christ, that is not something that we achieve. We, in our own strength and activity, we do not accomplish our, our maturity in Christ any more than we accomplished our new birth in Christ. I'm going to say that again. This is really important. Get this. When it comes to our maturity in Christ, we don't accomplish, we don't achieve our maturity in Christ any more than we achieve our new birth in Christ. It's all by grace. It's all a gift from God that he gladly gives us. And part of the gift that he gives us of our being in Christ is that we grow in him. Part of the gift of being in Christ is that we mature in him. And yes, we're active in it. Yes, we have alts. 
The, the maturity, though, is not left up to us. It's just natural to who we are in Christ. Christians, look, the way that we should think about maturity in Christ is that it's simply becoming more of who you are. You're glorious people. Glorious. The glory in this room, mind-blowing. It's becoming who you are. It's natural to who you are. Team, team, bring it in, bring it in, bring it in. That first half, that's not us. Just sticking with the ABCs, milk, that's not who we are. God has destined us for more than just sipping on milk. So let's go on. Let's be carried on to the fullness that God has determined to give us in Christ. When he chose us in Christ before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. Maturity is our destiny. It's where we're going because of who we are. And then finally, our reasonable hope for something better is in verse 3. Verse 1, let us be carried on to maturity. Verse 3, and this we will do if God permits. What a verse. If God wills, this will happen. Christian, don't forget God. Don't forget that his will for you is your sanctification. God's will for you is that you be conformed more and more into the image of his son. He didn't just call you in Christ, choose you in Christ, and then go hands off. No. I'm sure of this. I'm sure that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Team. We're going to win the game. You get it? You get it? We're going to win. We're going to win the game. Maturity is our destiny, and God is at work in you. Maturity is our destiny, and God is at work in you. That is reasonable hope. And that's what brings us to the table. Church, I want you to know, we are blessed out of our minds. Blessed out of our minds. Jesus, Jesus has paid for all of our sins. Jesus has set us free from the tyranny of the devil. Jesus watches over us in such a way that not a hair can fall from our heads without the will of our Father in heaven. In fact, all things, all things, all things must work together for our salvation. The Word of God assures us of this. And this is what we remember together when we come to this table. Our receiving of this meal, our receiving 
the bread and the cup is a symbol of our fellowship with Jesus. We are saying that indeed we are united to him by faith. We are are saying we belong to him. Our hope is in him. And if you're here this morning and you say that, if you trust in Jesus Christ this morning, this table is for you. The body of Jesus is the true bread. Let us serve you.